On this week's episode of Where We Are, as promised, uh, we are going to talk foreign policy and we have a, a very special guest to help us in that conversation, the Washington Post's Demir Marusik. I'm super excited for this episode. We just wrapped the interview with Demir. I think you'll benefit from it a lot. And so welcome to Where We Are. You are listening to Where We Are. We are the Where's. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. And this podcast is brought to you by the That Sounds Fun Network, supported by the Center for Christianity and Public Life. You can learn more about the center at ccpubliclife.org. Melissa, my leg continues to be on the mend. I am uh, I'm kind of hopping around the house more. Uh, though granted, the longer I hop around the house, the bigger my foot gets. It's a it's a yeah, great I, game for the kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> your foot starts to look like a cartoon because it it's does. like a little, a little blimp. It does, but uh, but I'm feeling feeling okay. Um, have spent a lot of time this week on uh, book edits. Mm-hmm. The book is almost wrapped. Uh, one thing that really uh, sort of gave me extra motivation to make sure the book was done is it's now available for pre-order. Yes, it is. And we announced the new title of the book, uh, The Spirit of Our Politics, Spiritual Formation, uh, and the Renovation of Public Life. Uh, the book is available for pre-order. Uh, wherever you order books, it would be not just an encouragement, but it helps the publisher. It helps bookstores to know that there's excitement about the book. Mm-hmm. It helps uh, it helps make sure the word gets out about the book. Um, so would love if you would pre-order this book. Uh, I, I've been deep uh, in this book, uh, I mean, for now a year and a half, but especially doing edits over the last week and i'm just i'm really melissa i think i yelled upstairs like i'm (laughs) i'm just i'm just uh really excited about how it's come together and and excited to share it with you all and so you could see the cover i posted on social media uh but you could also see it when you go to pre-order the book uh (laughs) description so you know what the book is about and folks because i've i've been reading the book i've read it several times over now and now that it's going through the editing process and i went through the first five chapters just a couple of days ago um where michael had gotten to an editing i just have to tell you it's completely worth the pre-order you will enjoy this book because it is unlike any other politics book you will have ever read it is a paradigm shifting book especially for christians in the way that we think about and approach politics you will have not seen the ideas that Michael is writing about anywhere else before. Um, I was reading a certain chapter and paragraph after paragraph, I had to sit and chew because Michael was presenting a different way of looking at something that even I had been looking at for years. I'm married to the man. And I've heard you talk (laughs) about these things. I mean, it is just a book that will absolutely change how you think and approach politics, especially if you are a Christian in the United States. 
So highly recommend that you go and pre-order it. And like Michael said, it really helps the publisher know that there's interest and more bookstores will carry it because they see that there's that interest ahead of the release date um, next January 2024. Thanks, dear. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're, we're really excited about it. Yeah. Uh, just like we're excited for this conversation with Demir, um, we... I mean, I feel like we've been talking on the show for a while, been talking on the morning five. There's just been so much foreign policy news. We wanted to spend a full episode walking through some of the, we didn't get to everything, but walk no. through some of the big flashpoints. Uh, in the past so, like three weeks, especially if you've been paying attention, it just seems like there's a ton of foreign policy headlines. So we wanted to help you walk through those things and understand them better. And Demir is um, just so incredibly intelligent and answers all of our questions just with such interesting answers. I'm still thinking about this interview because we just conducted it. Um, but do you want to introduce Demir in his in his bio? Yeah. Uh, so Demir uh, just recently joined as editor uh, for the Washington Post's uh, uh, editorial uh, opinion section. He's based in D.C. Uh, Demir covers... Uh, both uh, domestic and international policy. Uh, but he, uh, since 2018, Demir has been a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, where he led, as we discussed, the organization's Balkans Forward Initiative. He is also the co-creator and editor of the Wisdom of Crowds podcast and the Substack and uh, everything associated with that. Uh, uh, he... Uh, does that, of course, with our friend Shadi uh, Hamid, who we had on the podcast uh, mm -hmm. recently as well. Uh, and so uh, that's Demir. You'll get to know him a bit through this interview, uh, and I, I know you'll, you'll come to appreciate him. Uh, here is the interview with Demir on where we are. Hi, Demir. Welcome to Where We Are. Ah, hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, so good to have you on. Great. Thanks for thanks for being with us. We've been uh, sort of, you know, uh, giving uh, headlines and, and updates on the, just the incredible, I, I don't know if you feel this way, it seems to me like, uh, obviously, when Russia, Ukraine sort of first, uh, when Russia first invaded Ukraine, uh, that was a pretty sort of overwhelming moment in, in foreign policy. Uh, but the last month has just seemed uh, incredible, both for the intensity of the news and also how, uh, how far it spans across the globe, the kinds of issues. And so uh, we thought it would be really great to, uh, to have you on to uh, to to be a part of a discussion and and really to help walk our listeners through some of the some of the sort of top developments that have taken place over the last few months and would love to start with mm -hmm. the data leaks yeah and so uh, so uh, with sweeping implications everything from U.S. involvement uh, uh, and sort of infiltration of Russian institutions to Sort of battle plans uh, and and sort of a battle uh, 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 battle applicable sort of uh, information for Ukraine to U.S. 
uh, potentially spying on allies. And this, of course, isn't the first time that that kind of news is leaked, but have had uh, serious uh, conversations with South Korea. Uh, can, can you, what's your sense of the import of these leaks and uh, how um, do you think that there are consequences that will be felt three months from now? Or do you think that this is just a, a flash in the pan sort of sort of story? Look, you know, <clears throat> I, I've been struggling with this story uh, in a lot of ways. And I, I, I feel um, in general, you know, I'm, I'm at the post-opinion side route right now and mm-hmm. our sort of discussions about how to get at the story. I mean, we've been getting at it in, in all sorts of ways. Um, my personal instinct, not not necessarily the consensus instinct at the uh, at the post, is that there's a there's a big element of of uh, what was that Coen Brothers movie, uh, Burn After Reading, <laughs> to all of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> because because it's it's yet again uh, our vaunted intelligence apparatus and classification system just you know getting blown up and shown yeah. for just how deeply insecure and unregulated the whole thing is. I, yeah. I think people forget that that Snowden sort of built up and has been built up into some sort of master hacker, but mm-hmm. he wasn't. He was he mm-hmm. was a you know he was a tech guy, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I forget which uh, which contractor he worked for, and he just you know logged into some some intranet and downloaded some, some PowerPoints is really what this is about. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, master spycraft, this is not, this is, this is just uh, sort of a kind of um, a symptom of what, of what's wrong with our entire classification system. Um, I'm looking to try and find someone to, to try and diagnose that and, and come up with, with, uh, with a, a, uh, a set of proposals to really just sort of how to think about this. What's broken exactly about it? Obviously, it's big, it's unwieldy to the point that you know the le- layers of classification are so big. But mm-hmm. the other part of it, as I understand it, is is our the the uh, the IT systems in our government are also just wildly outdated and, yes. and yes, yes, yeah, <laughs> and and yeah, you know, I mean, the extent to which I mean, I guess we'll find out. But but how. You know, a National Guardsman is able to to have access to this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think in the Pentagon, they're you know sort of cascading forward lists on emails that basically happen, and I don't know how that trickles down. And it's 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 part partly that's that's to me one of the main stories around this. Now you raised other really interesting stuff in there. You know, I mean, when it first happened, um, you know, when no one really knew exactly what was going on. Um, one strand of news was saying that uh, already some of the the data had been doctored by the Russians and that mm-hmm. this was a, a counter, you know, leak. But to me, the first thing that jumped out was the details that we had, operational details on what the Russians were doing. Mm-hmm. I almost suspected that we leaked it intentionally to psych them out because, <laughs> because, because really it was like, we know before you're even thinking it, before you're yeah. even two layers down in your bureaucracy of getting an order down, we know what you're doing. Right. Yes. And that, that psych out level at, you know, talk about, you know, battlefield readiness and things like that. The Russians are getting ready now to absorb uh, what hopefully will be a successful Ukrainian counterattack. Um, 
that has to throw them that, that, you know, we have that kind of visibility (laughs) straight down into everything. Um, you, you know, there's a lot of sort of, I think, pontificating in writing, which I don't know, uh, I suppose is, was based on real reporting that, you know, the Ukrainians are freaked out, um, Mm -hmm. about this and that this could already, you know, damage further trust in, in, in a situation like this. Personally, I, I never thought much of that because the Ukrainians are about to go into the biggest under, battlefield undertaking. They can't afford to mm. not actually be really synced up with, with their allies at this point. So they may not like it. They may not be worried, but I don't think it's going to have an impact there. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, as yeah. for spying on allies, as you said, I mean, story as old as anything. Yeah. Uh, we're always doing it. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is allies also know we're doing it. They're doing it to us. Yes. That's the nature of these sorts of things. And of course, when it happens, you know, everyone gets up on their high horse. And, <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> How dare you? My goodness, gambling in a casino. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that's that's sort of the long and short of it. I it it it, it it's it's definitely a news story. It definitely has a lot of impact. Um but but in many ways, what's most notable about it is the extent to which it's not that new at all in a lot of ways. And Mm -hmm. I mean, just to, uh, the, uh, the credibility of our intelligence, uh, and sort of, as you said, like our, our, uh, I mean, the the Washington post story that was, I don't know, 3000 word. I mean, it was a long story and you're just reading paragraph after paragraph of, you know, these 13 year olds offering their response to these confidential documents. And you just go, this is the most embarrassing way for information to leak that I could possibly sort of conceive of (laughs) Um, that, that for months and months, these 11 and 12 year olds were playing Fortnite and, you know, like reflecting on uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, the Russian military's uh, sort of battle readiness is just outrageous. Yeah. But, but, sorry, go ahead, Demir. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you're right. It's not a good look, but go ahead, Melissa. <laughs> yeah. The, the focus on Discord itself has been super interesting to me because right when the Ukraine war started, I was invited by someone into what was called the Doge Gen which is just one of many groups on Discord. And it really covers like foreign policy, like what's going on in the world. You know, it has these different groups like following basically any country where there's some kind of conflict or civil war or whatever. And there was a ton of Ukraine ops, so special ops type of information. And especially at the beginning of the war, the first two months, I follow, I went on every single day and followed it. And I, and I said to Michael many times, and I said to several other people, I feel like I'm seeing information that isn't coming completely from open sources. This Discord thing is very interesting because I had no idea what Discord was. I didn't know, know it was for gamers, that mm-hmm. it's a platform for gamers. And I'm on there. I'm not a gamer whatsoever. <laughs> I, I do not you play games. You got game, I, but you're not a gamer. And so it's been very interesting over this past year to follow Ukraine through Discord and getting seeing a lot of pictures and information and also never really knowing where it's coming from and if it's true. And you have a bunch of people constantly responding going, I think that's fake. That was this. I found this, you know, from years ago, that photo or, you know, that piece of information is really old. It's from this source, things like that. And so to have the to have these documents 
leaked out on Discord in particular, especially from someone, I mean, we don't completely have a profile on this 21-year-old, you know, National Air Guardsman yet. We have some idea and we have also some idea that he's trying to like show off to these people that he had access to this kind of info. Yes, it brings up the, the point that you're making of the antiquated systems and the problems of classification in the United States government. I mean, I worked for the State Department. I worked on one system that felt like it was truly from the very beginning of the internet. And it was the main system that I used to um, run FOIA documents because I worked mm. on FOIA policy. And it was a system, which this was 2008 to 2013. It was a system that was at least like 25 years old at that point. <laughs> and I worked with a lot of paper. Mm. Most of the time it wasn't electronic stuff. It was paper. And this was all the way into 2013. So like, yes, the government systems are like, and I was working with top secret documents often. Yeah, as well. And yeah. I also I was I was at one point I was 19 working with top secret documents because <laughs> that's when I was first hired. Yeah, <laughs> You know, and again, this guy was 21. Um, yeah. yeah, it brings up a lot of questions about how again, because and I thought of Snowden immediately as 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 you did, as you mentioned him, I thought of him immediately about it sort of being a lone individual, again, having the power to disrupt so much. And the United States government has got to get its act together. Uh, for that very reason, you know the thing. The thing that jumps out at me uh, is is again, it's so sprawling, and so many people have mm -hmm. access to so much of this stuff. Uh, and you know, given that they're individuals all over the place, I'm I'm sort of surprised that that it hasn't been compromised more often and more yes. frequently. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, what 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 is uh, you know, what are the Russian and Chinese intelligence services doing if not actually trying to find young idiots yeah. with access right mm -hmm. now yes. to, to get this from them? Yes. And maybe they are. Maybe that's already happening. I mean, mm -hmm. the, we don't see most of this stuff out, not in the public, until it blows up in a stupid way like this. Um, yeah. But it's uh, it, it really is remarkable. You know, yeah. to your point about Discord, I've never been on it, but... Um, it's it is interesting, and I, I'm sort of now maybe thinking I, I should sort of figure out a, a a way in to to just sort of get a taste of it. I've been watching the the Ukraine war through Telegram, the Russian uh, social media okay. yeah. uh, thing that was um, set up by you know this one Russian guy um, who then went to exile, but still some, seems somehow compromised. Anyway, uh, Telegram's a really interesting service because it's it's kind of like Twitter, but but kind of you're broadcasting, um, so you can do long form stuff and embed a lot of things. It really is it's it's somehow newsier than Twitter, at least the the part that I was using on it. And it too was this entire you know infinite hall of mirrors. Um, and yeah. but because it's Russian yeah. and Ukrainian, it was just basically ops and counter ops well, one on top of the good. other. And uh, yeah, the first few months, I mean, I, it was it was absolutely addicting uh, and horrific because you're seeing, you know, you don't know what you're seeing exactly. You're seeing it from different sides. Some of it's real. You're trying, you're jumping from channel to channel to try and figure out which one is which and what's what. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's this war has been really something else. I think for for information warfare. And I'll just say, um, it's the one thing that I think. A lot will be studied about this war. Mm -hmm. yes. And I think a lot of countries have a lot to learn uh, from Ukraine about info ops. They have been uh, so on message um, and so spectacular at just basically controlling the narrative. They owe so much to their president. Uh, Zelensky is a, you know, uh, as as your listeners uh, 
surely know, you know, he was a TV actor, mm -hmm. quite famous one, not just in Ukraine, but also in Russia. Um, and uh, uh, all of those skills as a sort of public personage have really made a huge difference, I think, for Ukraine yes. in ways that, that, that um, you know, in future wars will be studied. How do you control the information space as much as you do and as carefully as they do, which also involves really great discipline on the ground about, you know, not, it's still difficult to find out, uh, apart from assessments that sometimes leak out of the Pentagon about casualty rates out of Ukraine. Um, you know, just on trying to do that research, even uh, other, uh, you know, allied governments don't have access to this sort of data. Um, so it's, it's, it's really something, I mean, you really have to, uh, tip your hat to, uh, a lot of the things that the Ukrainians have managed to get right in a very, very difficult situation. Yeah. So, so the conversation has kind of naturally moved yeah. to Ukraine. And so you've obviously touched on it a bit, but what's, what's the current state of play as you see it? From my perspective, it seems like it's been months of at least how it's characterized in American and Western press of sort of Russia being embarrassed of Ukraine sort of pushing back on most uh, of Russia's offensive attacks with some exceptions. Um, I know just in the, in the last week, two weeks, uh, Russia uh, really um, uh, seems to be trying to use more force. But but what's the state of play in Ukraine? You mentioned the expectation that Ukraine is about to um, uh, uh, conduct a, a counterattack. So yeah, give our listeners a sense of of where, where Ukraine stands today. So, I mean, it's it really is a good pivot because exactly what I was saying earlier about information ops uh, makes it really difficult to be able to ascertain what's about to happen. <laughs> Um, I, I have to say that, um, again, and the caveat being that maybe it's all a setup, but I'm, I am, um, struck by how in the last few, uh, weeks, uh, people have been getting more worried about yeah. the likelihood of the counteroffensive working. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if it, was possible to get the message out that the Ukrainians are in much worse shape when in fact they're in much better shape, uh, this would be a great thing to do. But we don't operate, uh, you know, in that world and we can't tell. Mm -hmm. So all we can say is what the assessments are. Uh, one of the other stories that came out of the leaks, of course, was actually a pretty grim assessment of wh where the Ukrainians are. Yeah. Um, that they are short of air defense weapons. Uh, some mm -hmm. of the assessments that they'd be actually able to make a meaningful progress in this spring counteroffensive are, um, they're, they're, you know, the the likelihood they're giving is that we're we're heading into a stalemate with minor movements of territory wow. um, after yeah. this. Um, you know, by the time this uh, this podcast goes live, I just actually was uh, working on David Ignatius's latest column, which is you know. It's going live soon. And he went and, um, uh, you know, followed up on the leaks and talked to administrations and said, OK, it's been three months since the leaks. Has the has the situation on the ground changed? Um, and the, the answer is no, not really. Uh, so mm -hmm. still grim. Um, basically, the the line from from uh, the White House seems to be uh, the Ukrainians are fighting for a lot. 
and they have overperformed expectations at every turn, even including in Bakhmut, where we've been telling them to not fight for that town, to pull back to higher ground and just hold that rather than sacrificing. They chose not to. They told us that uh, they know best. It's their country and screw off. And that's mm-hmm. fair enough, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, um, so they've been dying, but also killing a lot of Russians in this town of Bakhmut, uh, you know, in the in the Donbass region. So one of yes. the, the nastiest battles of the war. Um, so, you know, the, the question is, uh, the other, you know, sort of line that's been out there for quite some time now, and obviously it's self-serving for the Ukrainians is we don't have what we need to, to, to do this. Now, obviously going into any very difficult, I think even in the best circumstances operation, um, where, uh, you're facing a well-dug-in enemy that's been preparing Mm -hmm. for it for a very long time, you're going to ask for as much as you can get. So obviously Mm -hmm. you're going to say, we don't have enough. But again, some of these assessments do keep coming back to this question. It's like, well, you know, maybe they don't have enough. And maybe if they had X, Y, and Z, they'd be more likely to succeed on something like this. So, um, I mean, I guess that's the state of play and that's how I'm watching it. Uh, Something's going to happen in the next couple of months. Uh, in the sense of the Ukrainians trying to make a push. Uh, If it's successful, uh, you know, we still don't know how to define success. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, I I think the the sort of colloquial success that the Biden administration and others are hoping for is a a localized route here or there of Russian Mm -hmm. forces where they the lines collapse and they flee. Yeah. which uh, then rattles the Russian command enough to come to peace negotiations. Yeah. Right. All of the, the this I do think is, is, is more reliable. Um, you know, a lot of the sort of narrative has, has up until, you know, late last year has been, you know, the Ukrainians choose when, uh, what, when they stop fighting, victory, even including all of Crimea, uh, being reoccupied, you know, if that's what they say it is, that's what it is, and we'll support them however long it takes. That's that line has actually fallen off. That's no longer the case. Yeah. We don't talk about that 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 anymore. Even the Ukrainians mm-hmm. have have sort of uh, put out feelers that you know that's not the maximal sort of position anymore. Um, but then the question becomes: Is again, what's victory? Um, yeah. If the Russians aren't coming to the table for a negotiation, even after losing X number of troops and X X amount of land, where are we at that point? And I would say that's maybe the nightmare scenario for the Biden administration. I think the Biden administration would really like to have this war in some kind of peace negotiations, if not at a peaceful situation uh, in the upcoming year for the elections. Um, Also, just in general, it's very expensive and even allies and the United States, it's just a lot of money, mm-hmm. eight to tw- eight to ten billion dollars a month, yep. um, to just sustain the status quo at this point. That's right now. You know, yep. there'll be another status quo after the thing. It's, but but flip that around. Then, if you're Putin and you survive this onslaught, and it's costing the allies eight to ten billion dollars a month to sustain a new status quo that is still not satisfactory, and he says, "I don't need you guys." I don't need sanctions lifting. I just saw an article before we came on that China and India are buying so much Russian oil at this point yeah. that they're selling more than they yeah. did before the Ukraine invasion. So, yeah. you know, you look at that kind of stuff and you ask yourself, what is the end game for this? If Russia can sustain it, doesn't collapse after this counteroffensive, 
and then can sustain the war. Well, let's say another 18 months at, cool. during which it's costing us another eight to $10 billion a month to sustain Ukraine, which is in really bad shape. Yeah. Um, you start to wonder whether the Biden administration may have miscalculated somewhere along the line here mm-hmm. uh, in, in their sort of idea of, you know, we'll help them, but, you know, et cetera. A lot of the rhetoric about victory no attempts to to either go for full victory or a negotiated peace more fully. And so you have this kind of perhaps a really nasty situation uh, arising in the next 18 months. That's what's sort of keeping me up at night, quite frankly. Yeah. yeah. And another one helping Russia right now with oil is Saudi Arabia and OPEC saying That's they right. were going to cut production again. Yep. I mean, it's completely helping them because, I mean, there's constantly this question around have the economic sanctions worked? And I feel like I'm seeing every other week an article saying, yep, it's finally starting to work or nope, they're completely resilient. And we have, I mean, it's just hundreds of sanctions. Um, and so like the whole idea behind like, you know, the foreign policy toolbox that we have when we see all these sanctions sort of like not really making too much of a dent yet because Russia has so much, so many other things in its back pocket, it it brings like that kind of issue into question. But one other place I want to pivot with with this war in Ukraine is, you know, trying to define success, but also, you know, especially for the Biden administration, but on Putin's side of things, um, how we judge him and the decision that he made to even, you know, start to conduct this war. With NATO, Finland is going to join NATO now, which is going to have pretty much one of the longest borders added to NATO, you know, since it was created. Um, you have Turkey allowing that to happen. You now have Sweden in discussions, and obviously Turkey is kind of the the linchpin there for allowing Sweden in. You've got Germany, I'm going to put quote-unquote remilitarizing, and I know that there's discussions around how much of a remilitarization there is, but the fact that there is any at all, like there's that whole discussion. Do you think right now, as you see it, do you think Putin made a mistake could you talk a bit more about um, what's sort of been happening in Europe, sort of at like the power politics level of NATO, of Germany, and then we can get into France and Macron and his latest meeting with China and the implications <laughs> there. But we'll we'll leave that we'll leave that as the next conversation. But more so, commenting on NATO, commenting on Germany, Turkey, these other sort of major power players in the transatlantic scene. If you could comment on that, yeah. Well, look, I mean. Putin miscalculated from day one on this. Uh, <laughs> and he thought he could, he could. USA. Roll into- USA. Well, but, but hold on, Michael. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. Uh, we thought he'd do it too. Our, our, the CIA thought the same thing. That's why they were sending, telling Zelensky to get on a plane that we'd rescue him. So actually that's one of the things that's, that's not re- noted on enough. You know, we had yeah. good intelligence that he was going to go, but our intelligence assessment was that he was going to win very right. quickly. Yeah. Yes. Um, just like just like uh, the FSB and, and their military intelligence had. So actually, the, the, the Russian and U.S. intelligence agreed quite well on what the outcome would be, which is that quick fall of Kiev. Maybe maybe in in uh, uh, in the West, there's a, some sort of, you know, uh, uh, government in exile with Zelensky set up. But that's fine for Putin. And like we'll, we'll start doing from there. So I actually, you know. I do think it, this is a this is a blunder of Iraq war <laughs> of Iraq war levels on the part of the Russians. Um, I mean, arguably much worse. Um, but uh, 
but at the same time, I think it is important to keep in mind, I think in our in our in our retelling of it, it was like USA had the intelligence, we shared it with allies. <laughs> but don't don't forget that that part because I think it is an important and interesting little detail. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um so yeah, uh exactly. All of all all of what you said. Uh Finland's in NATO. Um Sweden will probably join. Mm-hmm. Uh, and insofar as this was a war about NATO uh, for Russia, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's a um, it's a it's a loss. I'll just say mm-hmm. before we, we get into into Europe, though, where there's a whole lot to discuss. Um, it's it was about NATO, but it really was about Ukraine and NATO for uh, yeah. for Russia. So one shouldn't necessarily look at all of this negative for Russia's, you know, conception of security developments that are happening with with mm-hmm. Finland and Turkey and all the rest of that, mm-hmm. um, and conclude that Putin is therefore now more likely to 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 back down. The scenario I was saying earlier about about uh, waiting it out and actually just bleeding Ukraine and the alliance dry in Ukraine, uh, not not for us in terms of people, but financially, to me, makes sense. Uh, you know, if you can do it, why not? Uh, keep destroying Ukraine. Keep the West engaged in this thing and and actually just pouring resources into a black hole. Yeah. I, you know, so sure, uh, Putin screwed up and now he's, mm-hmm. uh, he's got, he's got options. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think, I think a lot of our analysis doesn't, doesn't, for whatever reason, isn't looking deep enough into these options. I don't see enough commentary and thought going into uh, what this looks like. You're finally starting to see some people write about peace negotiations. There's uh, one yeah. in Foreign Poli- uh, in foreign Affairs uh, by Charlie Kupchin, and I forgot the other author uh, just the other day, which was fine, but just it doesn't grapple with how you get the Russians to the table. Unless, yeah. you know, I, to me, a lot of these pieces are like that. So what's happening in Europe? Um, I would just say that uh, I had greater hopes that uh, the war in Ukraine would make Europe wake up more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I, I am, you know, I do think one should have some sense of perspective of what an incredible, um, complete mind shift is necessary for the Germans in particular yeah. to yes. do this. Um, and so, you know, but even that, taking that into account, it feels like European politics, uh, on the level of that haven't actually changed meaningfully, um, at all. Um, take one thing, for example, uh, which is, um, uh, European enlargement. Uh, Mm -hmm. the European parliament voted, uh, to basically give the green light to Ukraine to come in. Uh, and mm-hmm. then the European Commission, um, oh, sorry, the Council, not the Commission. Uh, mm-hmm. so for your listeners, not to get too confusing, there's the Parliament, <laughs> which is elected, and yes. then there's the Council, which is the heads of state of all the yeah. European countries that you know have a different sa- kind of legitimacy. It's basically heads of state meeting, and they have all sorts of power also within the sort of European project. And so the Council then, you know, basically also greenlit the Ukraine thing. Mm-hmm. But if you're watching closely. Um, you'll see that actually uh, now the the old sort of logic is coming back. And that's at the council level where certain countries really don't want Ukraine into Europe anytime soon. So 
uh, and it's not out of some sort of, you know, uh, spite or anything like that. Yeah. Ukraine's a huge country. It's a, um, it's a country that, uh, is a agricultural powerhouse. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you can imagine how the French think about that. It's, uh, how the French and, and other, like the smaller sort of northern countries think about it, the center of gravity within the European Union would shift decisively towards Poland and Germany, quite frankly, if mm-hmm. Ukraine were to come in. So the internal politics come mm-hmm. into question. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, you know, I think probably the, the most good faith argument is that the European Union has a lot of trouble governing itself right now. And so adding uh, more members right now, and I can tell you, I've I, before I joined the post, I worked uh, several years working on the Western Balkans and trying to get these very small, uh, right. you know, population-wise irrelevant countries to get into the European Union. Blockages, blockages, yeah. political blockages. You'll get a lot of stuff like, oh, they're not reforming enough. But believe me, at <laughs> the heart, it's it's uh, the, the bitter Balkan proverb on this is, we pretend to reform, they pretend to want to let us in. And that's actually how this goes. The Ukrainians yeah. haven't gotten a taste of this yet, but it's there. And they're yeah. going to hit, you know, at the best case scenario, they win this war. They're going to hit a, a, a real blockage there. So these sorts of things haven't changed in Europe. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you know, I mean, if you want to sort of uh, pivot onto Macron and 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 uh, and what happened there. Let's uh, do it. <laughs> I, I would just say, you know... Um, the reality, what I'm gesturing at about not much changing politically within Europe, is that Macron said out loud what actually is being said quietly, yes. quite frequently in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and again, kind of like how when an intelligence leak happens, everyone gets on their high horse and says, "How dare you?" Um, <laughs> <laughs> gotta say, gotta save face, you know. Yeah. But now you've got you've got uh, the reality is is that that you know. Europeans are worried that the United States is going to drag them into a war with China over Taiwan. Yes. That's, I've heard that. I've heard that in, in, in private meetings. I've heard that as scuttlebutt. I, you, you see it if you read between the lines, it's, it's a widespread worry. Macron said it in that, 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 that kind of Frenchy way that, that is also arrogant and, and (laughs) off-putting and, um, and righteous and the rest of us, but the sentiments there, um, and, uh, you know, so in a sense, you know, how much has Ukraine changed things uh, inside Europe? I would say not that much, not nearly as much as you'd think. And quite frankly, not nearly as much as I'd hoped. I had really hoped that they would get much more serious about their own security um, mm-hmm. and that, um, you know, following on uh, four years of Trump where they really had their cages rattled. Had Trump won again, we probably would have been out of NATO in the second term. Mm-hmm. you know. And the, to take the lesson from that, that, oh, well, but Trump didn't win, so we're good now, is, is really, I think, deeply irresponsible. To have yeah. seen how incredibly unprepared they are and remain in the face of this war on their doorstep, it's... And still to not have been done really to have that kind of real change um, is really is really striking. I'll just say one sort of other anecdote on this for your listeners. You know, the the you mentioned the Germans, Melissa, and, and it's mm-hmm. you know, they had the the uh, their chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, mm-hmm. 
gave a speech about two weeks into the invasion yep. called the Zeitenwende speech, uh, basically yeah. world turning, you know, uh, yes, yes. sort of paradigm shift yes. uh, that they that he was describing. Um, the, there was a the one year anniversary of that speech passed uh, several weeks ago, and there was an article in Politico that I think really explains well what happened. Uh, it was just at that time when our intelligence and Russian intelligence looked like Kiev was going to get overrun that yeah. Schultz got snapped out of it and gave a speech, mm-hmm. a rousing speech that was going to happen. As soon as Kiev didn't fall, as soon as it was shown that the Ukrainians could hold their own and that the United States was there to back up the Ukrainians to hold their own and keep the rest of Europe safe, at that point, the Europeans collectively, more or less, said, whew. Good. Dodged another one. We've got our own business to deal with at this point, and that's where Europe is right now. Um, I, 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 I really don't know. You know, my European colleagues and friends. Oh, big thunderstorm outside! I don't know if you guys are hearing that. That was amazing. That was a huge one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's it's. Uh, I, I keep telling my European friends, uh, guys. You know. Trump may not win, but the Republican Party is 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 Trumpy at least in the in the in the main on foreign policy. And if you look closer at even Democrats, especially the younger generation, yeah. they don't have that sense of special relationship. They just don't. No, absolutely not. There there are actual. I I worked on a study between on U.S. and U.K. young people, and both in the U.K. and U.S. No, con- no conception of the special relationship, and that's just with the UK, which is now obviously out of the EU. Yeah, and you know, you pe- nobody had lived practically none of them lived during the Cold War, let alone World War II, where all this sort of like these ideas were strengthened and obviously created. Yeah, it's it's yeah, and 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 so you know, so you know, back to Macron and his and his uh, remarks after visiting China. Um, it's regrettable that, you know, they were as sharp as they were and uh, have caused the kind of stir that they have, because at, mm-hmm. on the main, he's kind of right. Uh, Europe is not going to be able to do anything for Taiwan. Uh, they uh, Europe's role in any crisis will be to hold the line on China as much as possible. Uh, you know, Macron's remarks, you know, more or less said that that ultimately we're not equidistant between between uh, the two things. But in the peacetime, in the meantime, we need to be sort of tending for ourselves and making Europe be able to stand on its own. All of that is correct. And I think, you know, there's Atlanticists in the United States that that hug Europe very close as well uh, in their, I think, really authentic desire and uh, belief that this is the right thing to do, but they're also not doing well by Europe because then all the Europeans do is, is, is wow, another one, uh, is, uh, is lean back and, and, and um, uh, just tend to life as it was before. And it's really striking the extent to which things haven't changed as, as a result of all of this. Hmm. I, we don't have time to talk about it, but I, I have thought, during quite a few points uh, of this, an alternative history in which Merkel is still chancellor and, and how Macron acts in the face of that, how it affects, if at all, Putin's decision-making. But yeah, I do Merkel's think, I do think it's such an interesting, yeah. interesting sort of thing, thing to consider. Yeah. Cause the thing with Macron and just for, re- just for our listeners, um, just last week, uh, Macron made a visit, um, 
to China, met with uh, um, the president of China, you know, had great talks because Europe has interests in green energy with China, in rare earth minerals with China, so lot, and, um, you know, uh, sort of shoring up trade with China. Um, and Macron, on a flight back to Europe, made these comments about um, if there is a war with Taiwan, you know, would, would Europe follow the United States and this idea of strategic autonomy, which is a very French idea. And Macron, with his comments, like anytime the leader of France makes a comment like this, um, especially post Charles de Gaulle, like Charles de Gaulle, who was the leader of France from the 50s and 60s, it's very Charles de Gaullian. Jacques Chirac had very similar type of sentiments about France. Sarkozy, who came after Chirac, the head of France for a while. I mean, it was like Francois Hollande, who was who was a socialist, was like the only guy who really kind of didn't talk about that type of stuff. And, you know, Macron has kind of gone back to that type of idea of Europe being a major world power while also not really getting involved in much, which is just not possible. <laughs> um, and also with France sort of being at the head of it, because France and Germany, ever since World War II, have always had a sort of rivalry, whether anybody likes it or not. I um, so Macron's sta- Macron's statements didn't surprise me as ter- weren't terribly surprising to me because they just felt so French. Yeah. Um, and so for and for Macron to sort of go maverick and start to speak for Europe in this way, every French leader has always, even Hollande as well, have always felt this way that they can speak for Europe, especially when Merkel was involved. You know, with Germany sort of being the head of the EU. It's always been this sort of tussle ever since these two, and especially since the UK left the EU. I one of the things that I've been thinking about is if the UK were still in the EU, is how things would be going right now. Especially mm. with comments like that, would Macron, uh, as well, even if Merkel was still in that, were still in there, would he actually have the gall, <laughs> no <laughs> pun intended, to be saying things like this after a meeting with China? But I do want to get into China here a bit yeah. with you. Because I we've heard from some of our audience members that they want us to talk about China more because China right now is just constantly in the news with he things here and there, you know, with uh, the head of China meeting with Putin recently and then Macron making this visit, China being one of the biggest brokers, mediators in the recent um, ceasefire really in Yemen to end the Yemen war, which was the world's largest humanitarian crisis. We should view it as a huge victory. Um, even though China obviously is, you know, this, you know, autocratic state um, that's obviously, a, you know, a huge competitor to the United States. And it's very interesting that all of a sudden China is taking this pivot towards diplomacy and trying to play this role that the United States has very comfortably played for quite a while at a time when just a year ago, COVID protests were really weakening um, the government in China. China's economic outlook actually wasn't too great. So domestically, mm-hmm. it wasn't doing too great. So it's really interesting that on the foreign policy side, they've started to make these moves while domestically, they've had a bunch of issues. And obviously, Hong Kong is another issue. And then Taiwan could also be viewed as a domestic issue. It's kind of interesting that these things are mixing. Where do you see China going with peace in Ukraine with its uh, with any kind of military relationship with with Putin and with Russia, with how Europe is going to relate to China and where Biden, where the Biden administration should, alt- where do you think, what steps should they be taking right now with China playing in this way in various areas of the world where the United States would also also believes it has influence? 
um, I mean, where to start? Um, I guess let's start with the Middle East one. Um, it's the, you know, the, the, the Yemen war was always a proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians. And, yep. and, and, uh, there was a rapprochement between the Saudis and the Iranians that, that, uh, took place in Beijing that the Beijing mm-hmm. facilitated and that the Chinese facilitated. Um, one shouldn't, you know, uh, completely sort of wave this away as nothing. Uh, but one should also note that, that the Saudis and the Iranians had been talking for a very long time mm-hmm. and, um, that uh, it's not clear what kind of sweeteners and guarantees or anything China provided apart from a forum mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. final mm-hmm. negotiations there. So big PR win, yes. rightly so. Uh, but also worth looking at more as uh, Saudi Arabia kind of uh, flipping the bird to the West more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the other story that emerged from that is... Uh, CIA director Burns flew immediately on a secret mission to Saudi as soon as that was announced and just dressed them down, uh, dressed them down. Just, I mean, what's he to dress down saying well, we don't appreciate being blindsided uh, because we were completely blindsided by that. Yeah. Um, but that to me is a, it's a Saudi Arabia story more than a China story. Uh, that said, China is playing the diplomatic card. They, they've, you know, set this thing up, uh, you know, this, this move on Ukraine to be some kind of broker. Um, notably, though, again, I, I don't expect them to be any kind of actual broker to this. And I, I think what you're looking at, this is very speculative, uh, but I feel like it has some legs, so I'll throw it out there. Um, I think they're also looking, as are the Russians, to seeing at what point uh, exhaustion sets in on the battlefield at some point, whether that's 18 months or four months, whatever. Um, but at that point, I think the, 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 uh, the Chinese role will be to basically, uh, be the United States, what the United States is for Ukraine, they'll be for China. Uh, so they'll be for Russia, pardon. And, uh, the, the thing that they will say at that point is, uh, okay, we're here at a standstill. The Russians did this without actually getting aid from us, but here's how we maintain the standstill. Uh, we will start helping the Russians after this if you guys, you know, don't. And, you know, there'll be a kind of standoff of terror uh, there, I think, between the two sides with the Chinese threatening to build up the Russians more if if we don't. I think that's the role that they're going to play, basically, yeah. as some kind of counterbalance mm-hmm. in the peace negotiations there. Okay. I don't know the extent to which... I'm, I'm sure this has dawned on people inside the administration. I've not seen anyone speak on it more openly. I've seen several policy people float the idea of how should we use the Chinese initiative in all of this to try and get to some, some sort of good thing. Um, but again, you know, it's not going to be, uh, um, I think, the Chinese putting up much more than backing Russia as we back the Ukrainians in some sort of peace negotiation. Um, but then, you know, to your point, though, Melissa, is, is, you know, what what does this mean for China? Well, then China's properly in the big leagues. They are standing across yeah. the table as the main uh, patron of one of the belligerents in a war that's been tearing this world apart and destabilizing things on the other side of the United States. So it's China, and the United yeah. States negotiating a peace between Russia and Ukraine. I think that's it's 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 pretty big in that sense. And I think yeah. that's the game where it's heading. Uh, and a yeah. tremendously difficult dynamic electorally heading into a presidential, uh, especially if 
the Republican nominee is who it's been for the last two cycles. I, I mean, can't it, imagine it won't be. And have you seen, have, have you, or maybe, I, I don't know if you guys have show notes, but put the, the link to Trump's last interview with Tucker Carlson on foreign policy. Okay. Have you seen it? Yeah, um, yeah, we've seen it. Um, yeah, just yep. take take all of that and just note that that's what's going to be the foreign policy refrain for the next 18 months. Yeah. Um, and then imagine everything we've been talking about right now playing out in any number of ways as the backdrop for it. And what are the opportunities uh, for a, a demagogic uh, candidate to really cause a stink? Yeah, um, indeed. Yeah. Hey, I think uh, I think we'll we'll land the plane. This has been a wonderful world tour with you, Demir, as usual. Uh, grateful for your wisdom uh, and your friendship. Uh, thank you for being on where we are. Any closing thoughts, anything you wanted to say, but weren't able yeah. to say any any like uh, foreign policy issue that we didn't cover that you think might might sort of surprise people as having more import than uh, than they may be thinking of currently? I, I, I don't know about an issue, but there, there was something I was going to say and I didn't. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe it's, it's, a, it's a good way to end on it. Uh, Melissa, you're talking about sanctions. Um, mm-hmm. One of the, the, I think, most astute things that my uh, former colleague Walter Russell Mead once said to me was that if you see uh, us in particular going really strong on sanctions, it means we don't have a policy. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and, uh, and the fact that now sanctions are not working as well reveals that point even more profoundly. Yep. So I, you know, I think, I think it's just, it's a, it's a nice little turn of phrase, uh, yeah. but it's, it should stick with people that hear it because when you see people, uh, you know, policymakers reaching for sanctions, it means we have no options. Yeah politically feasible options that we'd want to do otherwise. And we should note all of the trouble uh, we're having with having sanctions be that impactful on Russia and then yeah. imagine how ineffective they will be with China going forward. Right. Um, and right. so that's, I think maybe that's a, a, a good grim note to <laughs> to end on. Would expect nothing less. <laughs> Thank you again for being on. Really appreciate it. Hope to have you back, uh, uh, maybe in the thick of the presidential race. Uh, Absolutely. As, Would as love all to. This develops. Thanks. Great. Bye. Well, Melissa, not much more to say after that, but great conversation with Demir. Hope that uh, we've just been receiving so many questions from uh, so many of our listeners uh, wanting us to dig deeper into some of the foreign policy topics that we've been raising uh, on where we are in the morning five. And so... Uh, we thought this was a great way to do it. Hope that it was helpful to you. Melissa, any I love talking. I love talking foreign policy. It's my favorite. I know you do. I know you do. And Demir, I think, is a good conversation partner. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So uh, thank you for listening. Hope you have a wonderful week. Join us for the Morning 5 uh, this week. And we'll be back with you, Melissa and I, next weekend. Until then, thanks for listening. This has been Where We Are. Bye.